Hello, and welcome to the Real Estate Investors Lounge. Join us as we cover a multitude of real estate-related topics with some of the brightest and most experienced minds in the industry. Our goal with The Real Podcast is to provide information, strategies, and insight on how to navigate the current and upcoming Canadian market. We use the experiences, knowledge, and the expertise of our guests and professionals in the field and offer it all back to you, the listener. We hope you enjoy the show. Be sure to check out our website at www.reilounge.ca. We're your hosts, Brian Fitzgerald, Erica Spencer, and Jay Shaw. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Real Estate Investors Lounge. My name is Brian Fitzgerald. I'm sitting in with Jay Shaw. And this evening, we're sitting together with John Tenbrink of Blackjack Contracting. And we're going to sit down and chat with John about construction trades, sweeting, building stuff, tearing down stuff. And uh, I think for the most part, John is an electrician by trade. But uh, this is just another good example of networking in just a different industry. And John has built himself a little bit of a business now as a general contractor. So um, without further ado, let's say hi to John. John, how are you, buddy? I am excellent. How are you? Good. Thank you. So formal. So formal, I know. So, John, why don't you start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay. So, obviously, my name's John. I actually started as an electrician since I was 17. I um, was the youngest master electrician in Ontario's history at age 25. I started my business two months later as an electrician. And uh, we did that for about five years and kind of just fell into an opportunity to get into the general contracting side. And we ran with it. So, John, talk a little bit about what got you involved in the trades. Like, I mean, 17 years old, that's... uh... You know, that's pretty young to start. And I mean, uh, obviously, you know, um, becoming a master electrician, there's a lot involved in that. And, you know, at 25, doing all of that uh, education to get that, what made you want to get into the trade? Um, I hated being behind a desk. Um, we were, you know, you know, when you're in school, you know, whether you're a, uh, a bookworm or like to do it yourself. Or, and uh, I was... You know, my father's been bugging me since I was four years old what I wanted to do for a living. And up until I turned 17, I had no clue. And there was a presentation in school and uh, someone had mentioned electrician. I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. And in uh, high school, they offer a good program called the OYAP program, the Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program. So you actually do co-op in high school with with a company and it actually gives you hours towards your apprenticeship. So uh, there was a company in Grisby called Metcalf Electric, and they were generous enough to uh, take me on for two semesters. So uh, you uh, you go there and you learn with them, and and then so I uh, really liked it, stuck with it. My uh, father was a uh, auto mechanic, so I knew I definitely didn't want to do that. Um, so I once I did that, I uh, really enjoyed it, and then so uh, right out of high school, I got an opportunity to start an apprenticeship. Um, not the easiest task in the world to get an apprenticeship, but I was very fortunate that my, uh, that my uncle worked at a place in Grimsby and they were looking for somebody. So I, uh, I, uh, took that job, you know, did that for about six months till I moved on to another company. I only worked through 
three electrical companies my whole apprenticeship. So the way apprenticeship works is it's uh, five years of working experience in the field, and you have to go to three different sessions of uh, apprenticeship training in school. And so uh, I got my electrical license at 22 years old. And then in order to get a master's license, you have to be a licensed electrician for three years. So I actually took the course to be a master's electrician six months early because I was bored. And uh, the second I had enough hours, I wrote the test and thought I failed my landslide, but I got 91. Nice. So it's pretty uh, pretty interesting. It's uh, it's 9,000 hours of working experience, so it's uh, it's a good amount of time. So you know what you're doing, apparently. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Um, electrical was, to me, it's still a passion. I don't get to do it much anymore, but um, I can't sit in a restaurant without staring at the ceiling and looking at the electrical type of things. And I think that's important. <laughs> that's hilarious. I think that you you got to like what you do, otherwise you're not going to get good at it. And I think a lot of people in trades do it for the paycheck because it, it is above our average paycheck. Um, it's not as much as everybody thinks it is. But it's a it's a pretty healthy living, and if you uh, if you're just doing it for a paycheck, I, you're going to be miserable, and I don't think you're going to get very good at it. So that's how I got into the industry, and I think what really helped me is I was you know kind of fascinated by the whole building process. So as you're on job sites, you're you know watching other trades and you're asking questions, and uh, it ends up coming to fruition later on in life. Very cool. That's I didn't realize that uh, that you'd got started so young and you were you know, one of the youngest master electricians in. Did you say Ontario? Yeah, but, uh, okay. Ontario has its own type of program. Each province is different. Okay. So Ontario runs off uh, runs off a different program than most provinces. And then, so how did you make that transition into general contracting? This one's a funny story. I'm already intrigued. <laughs> um. There was a uh, contractor that also does kind of the same work as I and you know, we we had done quite a few jobs for him, and we we always kind of you know razzed him because they always seemed to go so poorly. The jobs were just so poorly run. There was always just chaos. But we were still pretty good friends with this person. So one day we were uh, doing a job for him, and uh, my business partner slash best friend Bill, uh, we we're like, let's go have lunch together. And uh, we're sitting down and, you know, rousing the guy. And, and I said, you know, we can do this way better than you, right? And he, you know, kind of jaws back. And then uh, I said, well, give us a give us one of your jobs and we'll prove it. And next day, Blackjack was born. And uh, so, you know, we went through the process of uh, incorporating a company right away. And because uh, it was uh, my other company was only a sole proprietorship. So my partner insisted on it. And then it was a good call. And, uh, so yeah, the next day was born to within, uh, within 48 hours, we had started a job and, uh, never looked back. You do things very quickly, apparently. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I get bored too easy. I thought it was that fateful house in Niagara Falls that we sent you to that, uh, got everyone together and, and started this all off. But, uh, well, that started it. I mean, that was, that's where we met this person. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, Jay and Erica, I actually, uh, I actually wired Jay's wife's hot tub about 12, 13 years ago, and that's how I met the whole clan. It's funny how everyone um, kind of meets each other, right? And I talked about it on the podcast a couple times. We had this one house, I think it was like a second or third house that we bought. 
and we'd known John for a while and John had known Erica and uh, we brought him in on the job and then we brought, you know, our contractor walked off. We brought in a new contractor and that person met John. <laughs> it's just like this one house is literally how we met probably 90% of our trades who I think now all sub for you, John. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, they probably do. Um, yeah, that's a funny, if you think that's a messed up circle, you should see my circle. I have employees that we met on just random job sites, you know, eight, nine years ago. It's just funny how it works, but that's, you know, that's the importance of relationships, which is yeah. everything in this business. No, absolutely. Um, so, John, let's let's kind of switch gears for a little bit. I mean, talking about, uh, you know, you're talking about kind of how the company was born. What type of work are you, uh, is your company predominantly working in? Like, what type of, like, job sites are you working on? Like, are you working solely for investors? Are you doing... Um, you know, commercial jobs, like what type of work do you predominantly do? Uh, the majority is, is doing basement suites and investment properties. Uh, that doesn't limit. We do, we do other projects. We'll do rentals. Like we have a addition and large renovation on the go right now. And because we have a very unique company, as in we have uh, multiple trades and an electrical company, we, you know, electrical is, is every type of job and some commercial reservation. Uh, the general contracting side, we've done, you know, have a minor, some experience with the uh, commercial, but haven't really focused on it yet. Our focus has been mostly basement suites and investments. Awesome. And, and John, what areas are you currently uh, or predominantly working in? Um, Hamilton, St. Catharines, and Welland. Uh, Welland is our bigger seller right now. And we enjoy that. We have uh, one job in Niagara Falls, but uh, the investment is uh, Hamilton, St. Catharines, and Welland. So you're just riding the the investment waves right through, eh? You know, it's uh, they're challenging projects, but they're good projects. They're clean work. So, um, like the you know, and 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 then and it's not really hard to network in the investment market, especially if you do a half decent job. And you keep special real estate agents and uh, property managers happy, which is not easy, by the way. And I'll be nice. Be nice. We won't have you back on this podcast anymore. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> okay, so, John, talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you talked about three municipalities, and I think by the sounds of it, every every one is a little different. Talk to us a little bit about, from a high level, I'm sure you could go on for a while, about the differences from municipality to municipality. and. What are the ones that are, I guess, developer-friendly and which ones aren't? It's unbelievable how different every city is. And, you know, they all operate off of one code book, so they say. But it is unbelievable how much one city can be more difficult than another. Um, I'll go city by city. Hamilton is uh, not a bad place to work at all. Hamilton has a lot of industry, a lot of suppliers, a lot of that thing. The biggest challenge with Hamilton is getting through the paperwork. Um, the permitting process is more challenging and time-consuming. Um, you know, Hamilton has you know really strict parking rules, so for investors, it's it's a real challenge on uh, how to get legal parking through the drawing process before they'll even issue the permit. Once you've been issued the permit by Hamilton, Hamilton's pretty easy to work with. The inspectors are, I mean, they expect you to do your job right, but they, they're very helpful. So I don't mind working in Hamilton whatsoever. Then there's St. Catharines, 
as you can hear my tone of voice. I need about 12 hours to explain this one. But St. Catharines is an absolute nightmare to work with. They do their own rules. It's a little hard to explain. The permitting process is not too bad, but there's an extremely ridiculous zoning law in St. Catharines and has caused us more issues. And then you guys can attest to this about not even just with the purchasing properties, um, but the building inspector is just the most unbelievable human being you'll ever meet to deal with. They have no idea what they actually want there. They can quote me. They'll change rules from house to house. No matter how hard you try, they find something else. For a small example, we were doing a fire inspection for the fourth time on one staircase on a property the other day, and he walked in and was complaining about the gravel in the window well, which is nothing to do with why we were there. Um, so, John, so, give us an example of kind of some of the requirements that the city of St. Catharines has, because I think, um, you know, I mean, the secret's out on St. Catharines. I mean, a lot of investors that, that we deal with are like, oh, what about St. Catharines? And, you know, I've I've heard... You know, um, you can get good rents there. So, I mean, there is a lot of interest in that. But from a development standpoint, I think uh, you know a lot of investors are caught off in terms of, you know, a number of the changes that the city, uh, you know, requires them to do. So maybe talk about two or three uh, big ones um, that okay. you and your team have to deal with. So in St. Catharines, there's it's very important to figure out up front is zoning. So majority of the homes in in St. Catharines are R1 or R2 zoning. R1 is the more prominent one for bungalows, which are, you know, important for the investors for for making legal suites. Now, that word legal suite is very important in St. Catharines because there's no such thing as duplexes in R1 zoning. It is accessory dwellings, and they are obsessed with this term. And this is very important to know when you're going into this. In R1 zoning, there is a maximum square footage allowed in the basement for a basement suite of 640 square feet. Most basements we're going to run into are about eight to 900 feet. So you're going to not be able to use, you know, a quarter of the space that you have available to you and you have to fireproof that space to the nines, which is very, you know, it costs more to fireproof than does the finish. And so We've done quite a few projects there. They've been very challenging. But the, I mean, there is right, the investors are getting good rents once we're done for them. But we've, we've personally had meetings with this about this zoning law. And it's really ridiculous because basically we're, we're not adding more bedrooms. We're not adding more cars to the property. All we're getting is really tiny kitchens and living rooms because bedrooms have to be a certain size by code. And, um, it really is a challenge and it's really hard for the investors and for ourselves because we have to show these investors, these properties we've built and they've paid good money for. And basically they walk in and are seeing a living room, the size of a bedroom. And as I said, they, they paid good money for these things and it's, it's really hard to justify on our end. And when you're given a set of drawings, I mean, it's hard for the average person to really put the drawing and know what it's going to become because it looks the same on paper. And a lot of the problems, too, is that the zoning map in St. Catharines was changed in 2013. So a lot of these investors are looking at these properties labeled as R2 zoning, and they turn out to be R1, which, I mean, at that point, it, it, it's awful for everybody. 
So in the, the map that St. Catharines has provided everybody to look is, is not the easiest thing to use. It takes me a while to get through it. So uh, buyer beware in St. Catharines is double-check that zoning. It's very important. So, John, aside from just square footage, what other things do buyers or yourself have to look for or um, do their due diligence on in regards to a legal second suite in St. Catharines? Like ceiling height or egress or? Um, ceiling height's pretty standard across the board for all the cities. It's six foot five is the minimum head clearance you're, you're required to have to get a building permit. Now, that you got to be careful on the bulkheads and the beams, but there's a, a very slight play with that. When I, I mean very slight play. And people got to remember when they're looking for these properties is that what time we add, you know, uh, resilient channel and insulation and drywall to their ceiling, it's going to drop an inch and a half. When we add your floors, it's going to add an inch. So if you have six foot five and it's bare concrete and bare wood, you're going to be adding to that. And that's what they're looking for. That's a pretty important one. Um, St. Catharines does allow tandem parking. So parking requirements is not near as strict in St. Catharines. Um, really, really forgetting permits itself. It's not the worst city to deal with other than, you know, allowing for this 640 square. But in saying that how you lay out those basements on paper, in my opinion, they don't want these, these suites. So if you put this big, unfinished space in a certain uh, location, the basement, the building department basically accuses you of just waiting and and turning it into a third bedroom or something like that. So they want it placed in a really awkward spot as you're laying it out to, to kind of ensure that you're not going to convert it. So, so the permitting process is difficult. But when you're going to look at a property, the biggest things you're looking for is, is head height, and you know the condition of the existing house and and, and that's really important to St. Catharines. Other cities have their own like Hamilton's actually a more challenging city to find the right property up front. St. Catharines isn't so bad that direction if you know what I mean. Does that kind of explain your question? Yep, yeah, absolutely. What about Welland then? Cuz we have a lot of investors going that way now too. Absolutely. If you know, honest, I mean, I'm going to be blunt with you guys. If I had my choice, I would do nothing but work in Welland. The building department is, they've announced to us, and it's true, you can tell by their demeanor, they're open for business. So when we're saying that, it's not like we're looking for an easy way to build things. You know, we kind of have to build things the same way, but their their building department is, is easygoing as in, you know, like here's a good example. I applied for a building permit last Thursday. And I had the building permit two and a half days later. Wow. Which is, you know, really quick. awesome, right? The building inspectors are reasonable people. I mean, if they don't like something, they'll uh, ask you to do it in this fashion and say, we'll check on this. When they don't hold you up, they want you to get through these things quickly because they, they want the investment, which is, you know, when, when you're a contractor and you know that they're going to work with you, and uh, to get you through these things and, and you know, cause we're all on time crunches and, you know, investors want these done at certain times so they can get them rented, which is hundred percent understandable. It really does make you feel good to work in a city that works with you. See, I don't understand why a lot of these municipalities don't see that. Like, I mean, Hamilton's pretty good. 
Welland's pretty good. Now, the minute you go and add value to this by changing the zoning, adding secondary suite, the municipality is going to get more tax revenue, right? And I think a lot of investors realize that and expect that. And you have some you know, municipalities like you know, St. Catharines where they fight it tooth and nail. And it's like, look, allow the investor to do what they want to do because at the end of the day, you're going to get more tax revenue as a result of it. So, I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive, but uh, I mean, that's interesting like in terms of just the varying differences from, uh, from the different uh, municipalities. So well, it's what, about 20 minutes, John, from St. Catharines, would you say? 15 to 20, depending on the area in Welland. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it, honestly, honestly, even myself, I'll be honest with you, I had a negative perception of Welland before I started working there. But once you actually get into Welland, there's some actually beautiful neighborhoods. And uh, it's come a long way. The neighborhood that we've been doing a few of these suites in, um, I would personally live there happily. So Welland, uh, Welland, I'm really high on, as you can probably tell through this conversation. You know, and they still have all the amenities. You know, the canals are beautiful. I, I, I think it's a great place to invest. I would, I would definitely invest in Welland. And uh, for investors, they're just uh, great to work with. And, so, John, and, over the past probably six months or so, like, um, talk to us a little bit about like the amount of jobs that you're doing. Number one and number two, talk to us a little bit about your team because I think there's a lot involved in this for the average investor or someone who's kind of on the fence thinking about you know, going the legal second suite route. Talk to us a little bit about the trades that you have in your team and uh, and what's involved in that process. Um, so we, as I was mentioning before, we have an extremely unique team that I haven't really run across before. And it's kind of just building relationships. So on our staff, we have obviously electricians. We have a licensed carpenter. We have a certified window installer. We have a handyman, which we'll talk about later. We have um, a few laborers. We have two painters, a mutter, and it really makes my job easier. Um, a lot of companies, you know, you, you're either the general or you're naturally a drywaller or you're naturally a framer, and, um, and then you have to sub everything else out. That adds the cost. Maybe not even to worry about the cost, but you have to manage a whole lot of different sub trades. And when you have sub trades, I mean, we you build relationships like we have, but you don't control. So that so they have all of a sudden a, you know emergency call come up, or they have you know sometimes just a higher paying job come in, you got put to the back burner, which it really can affect projects and speed. So it it's really nice having the team behind you so that you don't have to wait for everybody. You can do things yourself when you need to. And, um, and it's really good as getting them together. So you can, you can have a lot going on at one time. Like we've had eight jobs or nine jobs go at the same time. And as long as, you know, they're starting offset from each other, cause you're going to be in, you know, in the demo stage in the framing stage, trade stages, et cetera, et cetera. And they just rotate and it works out really well. The slowest stage is always the finishing stage. And, um, I mean, we have between the carpenter and our, and our windows, our trim carpenters are pretty fantastic at what they do for that stage. So it's, um, it's really nice having the team behind you and it's all, it's all relationships built over the year. I've worked with them one, one fashion or another, and it kind of just came to fruition when we had started this company and they all liked what we were doing. That kind of answer your question. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I think there's a lot involved in terms of sequencing, right? Especially if you're doing multiple jobs. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people have dealt with, uh, with trades before where it's like, 
they come for two days and they're gone for, you know, three days to, you know, start the next job and then they go back. And I think, you know, it sounds like you're, you know, based on your jobs, you've, you've been pretty, you know, successful in terms of sequencing so that, you know, the work is constantly getting done so that, you know, projects are coming in on time and most importantly on budget. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the important thing. I mean, there's always challenges, but I think, when I tell someone a timeline, I'm always trying to add, you know, additional time because I don't think anybody's ever going to get mad at you for finishing early, but they'll definitely be mad for starting late. And don't get me wrong, we've had challenges where things have gone long because of a pipe bursting or or, or um, there's things getting added by the city. But that, unfortunately, sometimes you can't control those things. But for the most part, as long as you sequence your jobs right, and that's kind of the, the management stuff, and that's kind of my job, which I, you know, constantly learning because. I'm not going to admit that I've been a general contractor for 20 years, but as you're starting, you know, every day you want to be getting better at something. And that's, and that's kind of our goal with all this. So um, keeping, keeping the communication and the projects within time and budget is, is what I usually get the most compliments about the budget one, especially. Um, I know the budget one's very important. This is kind of how I always felt is that my price usually when I give someone a quote is going to sound higher than a lot of people up front, but I've tried to think about everything. And a lot of complaints that I've heard from, from investors about other contractors is that their price comes in a certain price and then it's extra this, extra that. And I think that, think that investors, and, and honestly, I would feel the same way, hate that because when you're getting a budget and a quote, you only have so much money to work with, which is, and, and that's what I got to do a better job keeping the back of my head too, is that, you know, these people is your, you only have so much to work with, but where it's like delicate balance is what I'm saying between what needs to get done and, and pricing. But um, yeah, so I, I try to, I really try to think of everything up front. That way I'm not hitting anybody for extra money. And I, for the most part, have never had any issues. Well, it's good. That's very good. So, John, I want you to try and put on a different hat for, for a change instead of the, the white hat, maybe from an investor's standpoint. I think a lot of investors and people in general get a little squirrely when it comes to dealing with contractors. I mean, I was talking to a client today about, uh, you know, payments and such for contractors. But talk to us about how, you, how to deal with contractors. So try and put yourself in yep. their shoes for a change. And what are some of the important things to consider from maybe the investor standpoint who's dealing with a contractor like yourself? And you're 100% right. And this is probably one of the most challenging things about this industry. Uh, There's a lot of great contractors out there, but there's more bad ones. And getting through that is um, probably the biggest challenge. In my opinion, um, word of mouth and referrals and following up on references is super important when it comes to contracting because I got to be honest with you, it's, it's not regulated at all. Uh, it, it, it's coming from the electrical side where it's so regulated to the general contract. It's kind of embarrassing how unregulated contracting is. So if I was thinking as an investor, you need to talk to people you trust and have work done and you really need to do your homework and sometimes you got to use a little bit of your gut feeling, but uh, and how you feel about the person, how they present themselves, how their company's structured, um, and what kind of job you're doing. If you're laying new laminate flooring in a in a in a living room, 
yeah, you know, a small single entity guy, that's great. Probably great jobs for them. And there's a lot of great guys like that. Um, if you see the one man and he shows up in a pickup truck and, and you want him to do an $80,000 basement suite, does he have the resources or the staff to do so? And does he have the experience to do that? And, and really, if I'm sitting there and I wanted someone to do a job for me, I talk to him about it. I ask questions and, and really you'll know a person's knowledge, how they talk to you. If there's some people, but we other contractors that we know are just great talkers and, and you got to work through that, but you can really tell someone's by their knowledge and, and they'll point out things in your property and they'll, they'll know things right off the bat and um, see what their experience is. Have they done this before? Where'd they do it before? Um, who you can speak to about um, who you can speak to about your experiences and all of that stuff. So dealing with contractors, I think is one of the harder subjects to do. And, and um, honestly, I think that's where our success has come from on my side is, is obviously networking and great referrals and, and keeping people happy. And I actually had a conversation with a customer this morning. I was looking at a basement suite for them and I was looking at the property for the first time. And you, you could tell there were first time investors are a little bit nervous and um, the handing the reins over to a job like that and handing over money. And you could tell they're just so nervous, but the, the point of the matter is that they were asking me questions and like, and then my answer to them and all this is like, you got my referral from, uh, from this networking and I can't screw up because if I screw up, I'm going to give up 80% of my work because of the um, referral that I got from you. If I screw this up, I'll never get another one. And I think that's super important. So I think asking a lot of questions, asking a lot of people is uh, really important with dealing with contractors, whether it's a small guy or a bigger guy or a large guy. And just remembering that price isn't everything. And really another good one is the disparity between quotes. If quotes are coming within 10% of each other, that's pretty, I mean, they're, they're, they're all on the same page. If you see one quote for 60 and one quote for 80, you really got to think to yourself, what's missing out of that? Because these aren't, these aren't 50% profit jobs. So if $20,000 disparity, something got missed, in my honest opinion, and you want to check cross-reference quotes and see what he's got listed and what he doesn't have listed. And um, when it comes to when it comes to dealing with payment terms, um, it's real nerve-wracking to hand over money as a deposit. So you got to make sure you have your paperwork crossed, your eyes dotted. And and I'll freely admit, as I told this morning, for the first ninety percent of the job, the contractor holds the power. If you don't make that next progress payment when it's due we can just stop the job the last 10 percent is you know a lot of our profit that's where the customer holds the power again and so that's where you don't really want to get into that situation and if you're having money disparity in the beginning of the job it's not going to get better you need to really really get that figured out now if you're having bad feelings in the beginning you need to stop it then before you hand over any money um get that issue worked out or 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 move on. I mean, there's a lot of great resources to learn about contractors and dealing with them. And, you know, and on, on my end of it, and, and you know, investor members and real estate investors are usually pretty good 
of especially the coaches of, of telling them how to deal with contractors. If you pay your contractor on time and he has the cash flow to do your project, your project's going to go a lot better. If we're chasing you for money, it's going to be a nightmare. It really hurts us. Cash flow is the most important part about a contracting business to make sure you have, you're paying your suppliers, you're paying your bills, and you have money to work. So chasing money and all that really hampers projects. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you you just mentioned uh, payment structures, which is kind of another question I have. How do you how do you break that down for you know your your bigger jobs? I guess. If you don't mind, as I'm talking to you, I'm going to pull up something on my computer screen about um, how I like to structure payments. So I, I break it down into into job phases. So basically, like this job right here is a basement suite I'm looking at. So it's a it's a 10% deposit. Um, so this quote I got right here is is for 83,000 in tax. So basically, it's a 10% deposit. So in this case, this will cover the demo and getting and getting the project going. Then then I take another 10% payment before framing. Then I take another 20% draw after framing is complete as you're getting as you're getting the trades work going. And then I have another 20% around the insulation and drywall stage. Once the drywall is hung and mud is complete, I have a 30% draw for this one because this is where majority of the costs are going to come to play. You're purchasing kitchens and flooring and bathrooms. And the last 10% is the holdback period. And this is not due until the city signs off on the project on our end. So I usually do about six payments on a larger scale job. And uh, it keeps the cash flow going and makes sure that the investor is still comfortable. He's still seeing all the work before he's handing over large sums of money. And for the most part, this has been a pretty successful payment structure for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense just in terms of uh, doing it in small increments like that, right? Because I think, you know, a lot of us have heard horror stories of fly-by-night contractors where it's like, oh, just, you know, advance me the funds or do this, and, and then you never see them again. So. I mean, it That's seems right. pretty fair and equitable, right, like in terms of how you do it. And I think, you know, explaining to it, and it sounds like you do that with the client, is just explaining to them, you know, the payment structure and how it works and why it's like that. And I think a lot of people, I mean, even the, the clients that Eric and I work with, um, know that and understand that, and it makes sense to them. Yeah, I think uh, the paperwork, and I was, you know, I'll be, I'll be freely to admit that when I – first but that was not the best with paperwork but that's kind of something i've learned that it's even though i hate doing it it's super important to the process so try to get more detail on the contract just for them to understand it more of a breakdown for them to understand it because the, the thing that honestly i think some of us forget and i'll be guilty of it sometimes is that because we do this for a living doesn't mean they have a clue what's going on when it comes to building or what the process is and i think some of us forget that and kind of got to slow ourselves down and try to explain the process because I mean, there's a lot that goes into these things. It's uh, between trades work and plumbing and inspections and, you know, neighbors and tenants and landlords and cleaning. It's a, it's a huge process that needs to be condensed and understood. And I think explaining to the customers and it really does kind of help them get more comfortable. So, John, you talked about uh, the evolution of Blackjack over lunch and, and founding the company in, I don't know, 48 hours. Is that fair to say? Oh, about 24, actually. 
Okay, 24. Sorry, what was I thinking? So talk to us a little bit about making the leap from working for a company, because I think you mentioned you started, that's how you started when you were, you know, younger. Um, And then, you know, launching, uh, you know, a full-scale contracting uh, company and and becoming an entrepreneur. Was that a scary step for you? Did you guys think of that? or? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, it was. Um, I was 25 years old. I had, you know, I had a mortgage. I had just had my second child. My first one was two years old. I had a two-month-old child, a wife, and you know, I had $1,500 in the bank account. And you're just like, it's time. And uh, making the leap was very scary. But for me, I was young. I wish, I mean, if I would look back at it now, you, you're happy you did it because of the experience. I might have, if I could look back, I might have waited a couple more years and got yourself more financially stable, you know, get a little better foot in the door. Uh, when it comes to experience, no, it was, it was the best thing you can do for yourself. Um, it's funny, you know, when you first started out, you know, you're, you're doing everything. You're, you're, you're running to every opportunity. Um, you're dealing with, you know, tire kickers, people that want to pay you $20 for an hour's work and uh you know i'm about eight years into business now and i'm still constantly learning better ways to do things and you're like how did you not know that it's been eight years but uh i would never go back you know i've been there too long it's a lot of hours you know it's uh it's a lot of hard work it's not a thing but it gives you it gives you a lot more freedoms too and uh and the relationships that i've built in the last eight years doing business some bad mostly good and uh i think that going forward and and you know venturing into investments and stuff like that it was better for the better for the wear all right that's great um so last question john just before we get into kind of our fire round um what's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in terms of kind of you know creating building launching the business um you know in the beginning it was slow uh, as so you're working, we were working as basically sub subcontractors for that other contractor. And our biggest challenge up front was him telling the owner or the investor something and never asking us or better telling us about it. Um, and, and it caused a lot of issues and, you know, and then the investor was extremely happy with, with the quality of work but the communications and what was included and all that, and it ended up costing us a lot of money because they're, they're saying this guy had told us that, but wasn't in our deal. So, so challenges is communication. Um, you know, your fallbacks, you make mistakes, you learn from it. Um, and uh, we've had really good luck because of the relationships we've had with, you know, keeping busy, but, you know, dealing with employees, who aren't thinking for the big term, they're thinking for the short term and, you know, managing customer expectations and, um, you know, which is a real big challenge, you know, for dollars and cents and, and for time. Cause you know, everybody wants everything done in a week, but it's a three month job. And so I think uh, that's kind of our biggest challenges. Um, it's a very expensive business to run and um, you know, you know, you want to purchase this equipment, but you've got, you know, it's not really in the cards yet, that kind of stuff. As you keep growing and you can purchase stuff, it gets easier. And you know, I find it getting easier and easier. And um, there's been challenges. And that's the kind of thing that you learn a lot from it, if that makes sense. So we have what we call a fire round, part of our, our episode. 
Basically, what we do is we ask our guests the same series of five questions. So um, let's skip to the first one. So where do you see yourself and your company in the next 12 months? Um, more efficient. I think that's our biggest challenge. Like finding the work hasn't been a challenge. Doing the work hasn't been a challenge, but doing it in a more efficient and cost-effective manner. Um, I don't think over the next two months we need to grow right now. We've grown quite a bit in the first couple of years. It's just I think we need to get more efficient and turn them out like clockwork, and, and I think that'll be good for the investors and ourselves. Okay, and where do you see the the market that you're operating in, the real estate market, going in the next 12 months? Uh, you know what, that's, we're learning quite a bit about that, but I actually see it going going positive. It seems like, you know, I'm not an, I won't pretend to be a real estate expert, but I'm trying to learn. It looks like this market correction is starting to turn up again, based on what I see for work coming in investors. And it seems like the interest rates are going down a little bit right now is going to help really invest the market. So I, I see it going up personally. John, who do you learn from? Actually, you guys. Um you know, talking to real estate agents and listening to investors and going to the meetings. And, you know, I watch, I mean, quite a few, uh, I like to watch quite a few of the uh, investors on, on TV and YouTube and stuff like that and watch their videos. And uh, it's amazing what you can pick up just from listening to uh, people like yourselves. Awesome. So uh, what are you currently reading? And if you're not much of a reader, what podcast are you currently listening to? I'll be honest, I'm, a, uh, I'm not famous for reading, but I am trying to get better. So um, I had just finished Rich Dad, Poor Dad, of course. And now I'm currently into uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Nice. And if you could do one thing differently in the last year, what would it have been? Um, I would have tracked finances better. When I say that, I would have tracked um each job separately to see where we were doing well and weren't doing well. Um, it just got, it was it's so busy that, you know, I wasn't paying super attention. You're just trying to get things done. And I've, you know, in the last month I've switched that over to new software and all that stuff that's starting to track that. I just wish I would have done it sooner. All right. That's fair. Well, that, uh, that concludes the fire round. Well, John, honestly, uh, on behalf of the real estate investors lounge, myself and Jay, um, thank you very, very much for awesome content, which I think a lot of people are going to be able to grab a lot of good information from. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for that. And I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate you guys having me on. Awesome. John, we'll put your, uh, contact information in the show notes. If people want to reach out to you for, uh, for a quote, don't let the uh, big numbers scare you. John's a really nice guy. So I'm sure he can give you a uh, real estate investors lounge discount on his next quote. Don't worry, I'll add it to Jay's bill. <laughs> <laughs> we get discounts? This is awesome. This awesome. Is good news. All right, thanks for thanks for your time, John. Appreciate right. it. Okay, take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. It's Brian Fitzgerald here from the Real Estate Investors Lounge. We hope you're enjoying the content and the guests that we're having on the show. We love doing this podcast, and we love helping investors share their story with you guys. In order for us to gain traction and get more awesome guests, we hope you'll take the time to give us a five-star rating and a great review on whatever platform you're listening from. From all of us at The Real Podcast, thanks for listening.